Welcome back to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This week, a multi-billion dollar banking institution collapsed. Wealthy investors had been withdrawing deposits from First Republic Bank over the past few weeks in what has been described as a 21st century digital run on a bank. Federal government regulators seized the bank's assets on Monday and sold it to J.P. Morgan Chase. This is now the second largest bank failure in American history. And if you feel like you've heard this story before, it's kind of because you have. Another American bank has failed. Just this morning, financial regulators in California seized First Republic Bank after it lost $100 billion in deposits just in March. Yeah, folks, this is the third major bank failure in the past two months. With me now to help us unravel this unraveling is Aaron Klein, the Miriam K. Carliner Chair and Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. Welcome back to The Takeaway, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be back. What is happening? Well, it's the same thing that's happening. America has over 9,000 banks and credit unions. A couple of them uh, made some mistakes. Right. Both First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank, the two larger ones, kind of made the same mistake, which was they bet interest rates would stay low for a long time. And so they got caught having low interest rate assets whose value declined when interest rates rose. Signature Bank in New York and a smaller one, Silvergate Bank in California, also both failed. Those two institutions were a little different. They kind of leaned in on crypto. And when crypto winter and crypto exploded, that took a different hit on those two banks. So, you know, America has a lot of banks. They don't all work out. Some of them fail. That's kind of a normal thing. We've been lulled into complacency by the lack of failure for a couple of years, which I actually think is a bigger problem than when some banks are failing. Is this something that I, as a sort of ordinary, you know, citizen and someone with sort of regular level deposits, wants to happen, the federal government to step in and sell one bank to another and and get some federal financing of about $50 billion? Ordinary Americans with regular deposits can just go to sleep and wake up every night. That's why we have deposit insurance. Deposit insurance set up by Franklin Delano Roosevelt has $250,000 to today's limit or less in the bank account. That covers about 98% of Americans. The only people that have more than that in a bank account are really wealthy people. And I actually think that it's important for wealthy people to have money at risk. So ordinary Americans, your bank account, totally safe. Don't worry about it. From a broader systemic point of view, to try and make sense of it, here's a weird little fact. Banks don't go through bankruptcy. Even though bankruptcy starts with the word bank, banks don't do it. Banks go into something called receivership or resolution. This is because banks are different. They're special. They're chartered by the government. They create money. They serve a very different role from any old company that can go into bankruptcy. All banks have government charters. All banks are regulated. And when banks fail, the government winds them down. The standard way the government winds down a failing bank is to sell what's good from the bank, which are the relationships, its customers, its deposit bank, to another bank. This is a little trickier when they're very large banks. And there's a concern that as large banks, as we go through these failure, large banks merge, and now we only have very few large banks, and then what can you do when a very large bank fails? But it's important to note two things. One is First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank weren't that large. 
five years ago. They grew very rapidly. That was another reason that led to their downfall. Uh, rapid growth is often a sign that, that you're doing something very different from your peer group. Sometimes that goes south. And so when you have new banks come into the market and they get big, that shows a little more of healthy competition. Now, what I'm a little happier about with First Republic was this, the system. It took losses to the deposit insurance fund, taxpayers, bank customers. We're going to pay for these failures. You're going to pay in higher fees. But the government didn't go and take the extra step of insuring the uninsured deposits. That is, J.P. Morgan Chase bought those. And unlike, say, in Silicon Valley Bank, where the government bailed out big tech firms like Roku and crypto companies like Circle, here it was a pretty straight transaction. Yes, J.P. Morgan Chase got some good terms from the government because the government decided this was the least cost way to handle it. They took bids from all the banks. J.P. just came in with the best bid. That's how this is supposed to work. Help me to understand, though, why a bank would have taken on some of the risk th that you're talking about. So whether they're the uninsured deposits, the the low um, rates, uh, you know, w what was sort of the calculation of these banks that have failed? So for First Republic, what they did was they gave really sweetheart mortgages, very low interest rates, very cheap deals to very rich people. And they said, come bank with us. Give us your deposits. We'll give you these really nice mortgages for parking money with us. And then we'll go and invest that money, just like banks do, make loans, make investments, and we'll get a good deal. Intrinsic in their business model was that rates would stay low. If I'm giving you a mortgage where you only have to pay me 2% for seven years, right? I'm betting that rates are going to stay low for a while. When the Fed raised rates faster than it ever had before, they were on the wrong side of that bet. Silicon Valley Bank made a similar bet. They bet, hey, you know, interest rates are going to stay low. We're going to buy other people's really low mortgages. Remember, Silicon Valley Bank didn't really bank people. It just banked big tech firms. That works well when rates stay low. In 2019, 2020, 2021, starting Rates stayed low longer than people thought, and these banks made a ton of money. Their stock prices soared. They attracted more customers. They were growing. Their executives were paying themselves handsomely, and they weren't hedging their risk. This is where regulators let us down, one of multiple places. They weren't hedging their risk. Pause right there because I want to I want to dig in on that point in just one moment. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more on this bank meltdown and whether we should panic or just relax. <laughs> Next on The Takeaway. Since WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and we're back with Aaron Klein of the Brookings Institution, taking a look at the collapse earlier this week of First Republic Bank, now the second largest bank failure in American history. All right, Aaron, pick up on this idea that federal regulators, in part, um, have let us down in terms of this moment. Yeah, Melissa, it's unfortunate. We're always talking under these bad circumstances, right? It takes a bank failure to get people interested in banking. But there's a group of people that are always supposed to be interested in banking, federal and state regulators. These are the folks that are supposed to look after the bank. 
And they're the ones that tell the bank to act in a safe and sound manner. And here with First Republic and with Silicon Valley Bank, they didn't, the regulators didn't do their job. They watched as the bank amassed more and more risk. They didn't require the bank to hedge that risk. The bank didn't want to hedge that risk because they were making bets. And when the bets were working, they were making a lot of money. Their stock price was soaring. Their bonuses were being handed out. Everyone was happy. And the regulators were being weak and not doing their job and enforcing them to act more prudently. So eventually the bet goes south. You know, the bank starts losing money. At one point, investors wake up. And the thing about these two banks was they had lots of uninsured deposits. That is, most of their money was being kept well over the $250,000 limit. So these folks thought, huh, if this bank is not as healthy as I think, if it could run into trouble, my money could be at risk. So I'm going to leave because the first person to leave the bank gets all their money back. And as that run happens... The bank then has to come up with the cash. And to do this, they have to sell their assets or they have to borrow from another place to try and make it. First Republic tried both. The problem was their assets had gone down in value. Remember, these were mortgages at low interest rates. Nobody wants to buy a a 3% yielding asset when the market rate is up to 7%. And uh, they, they tried for a while. In the case of First Republic, the government organized 11 big banks to put in $30 billion of deposits as a show of strength, but it didn't it didn't stem the flow. And keep in mind, First Republic has been a dead bank walking for a while, hmm. and it's important not to have zombie banks. So hmm. the fact that it finally was put out of its misery was kind of a good thing for the system. Overall, zombie banks are very unhealthy. You can ask Japan economy has struggled for decades in part because they have zombie banks. So, you know, at a certain point, you got to you got to put them out of their misery. And that's what happened on Monday with First Republic. Okay, And yet there's still a like perception is reality. And so your point that we often don't pay a lot of attention to banking until there is a crisis. Can our sense of crisis lead to more crisis? Yes. All banking is built on trust. All finance is built on trust. I trust the bank that they'll have my deposit. I trust the insurance company that when I file a claim, they're going to pay me, right? You know, the bank trusts the borrower that they're going to pay him back. So all of finance is built on trust and panics can erode that sense of trust. And that is part of the job of the government. And one of the reasons government and finance have a more intricate relationship than other aspects of the economy is because during times of crisis, only the government can sometimes restore that fundamental trust in the system. So Aaron, I want to put this again, you know, just trying to think through all of this and the way that it comes at us, you know, on our nightly news or on our, you know, afternoon radio shows. And we're simultaneously hearing about these bank failures. And, you know, I hear you saying, all right, one of the the ways that trust can be reinstituted and shored up is through the federal government, which is meant to be sort of like the people in action. And can I just point out, apparently, federal government can't get its act together fiscally either. We're looking at Janet Yellen telling us that we are within 30 days of a pretty serious fiscal meltdown here Help me to understand how that either is or is not connected to this bank failures that we've seen. 
So generally speaking, they're not connected. The the debt limit, something I remember I worked in the Treasury Department for the first term of the Obama administration. We had some issues about that, too. The debt limit is, is actually an anachronistic uh, thing set by Congress going back to World War One, when Congress used to have to approve every issuance of debt and they had to leave for the summer. And they couldn't get back for a long period of time. Travel was harder in, in the 19 teens. And they said to Treasury Department, OK, you can borrow to keep the war going up to this amount. And point of fact, it doesn't make any sense because every dollar that the government spends and every dollar it raises is also set by Congress. So the deficit, the amount of debt is just the function of uh, other congressional actions. We have this extra debt limit. It doesn't really have anything to do with the banking crisis with one caveat, which is that the FDIC, who insures all of our banks and the NCUA, who does the same for our credit unions, their fund is at the Treasury Department. Their fund uh, it creates an interlinking with the Treasury Department. That fund has lost over 25% of its value, about $35 billion has been drained out of that fund, set aside to cover the losses from these bank failures. In that way, it's kind of a little odd and the kind of gnome in me can think of weird corner solutions where the FDIC and the debt limit interplay. But generally speaking, these two things have nothing to do with each other. For, again, sort of ordinary depositors who have less than $250,000 in the bank, do you have um, suggestions about how we should think about um, the effects that this might have? Are we just looking at sort of um, the Fed, you know, kind of increasing interest rates around trying to keep inflation together? And so, you know, to kind of think about that when we're determining what's what's next for us, but just sort of, yes, we can go to sleep. That's helpful to know. But, you know, are there ways that we ought to be navigating this moment for our own security, but also maybe even for our own benefit? So look, when you talk about your own benefit, Let's say, according to the data, people in the 80th to 89th percentile of income, right? People that economists, statisticians would call upper middle class, ordering almost on the top 10%, almost on wealthy, they have on average about $20,000 in the bank. So it takes a lot to get to 250. Not many people are at 250. But people haven't been thinking about interest. It's been a long time when I teach classes and I start talking about interest and inflation. Up until last year, I got lots of blank looks from the kids. They don't remember having been in an environment where banks offered four, five percent interest. And so if you if you are one of the lucky people that have ten, twenty thousand dollars in a bank account pretty regularly, maybe it's time to shop a little bit for better interest rates in terms of what how folks can make the system work for them. Aaron Klein is the Miriam K. Carliner Chair and Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. Aaron, thanks for breaking it all down for us. Thank you, Melissa.